new ideas always come from the fringe uh, in science. So we have to encourage new ideas to come up. And we can't have science to become a religion where there are dogmas, as it has been during this pandemic. Today I sit down with Dr. Martin Kuldorf, an epidemiologist, biostatistician, and a former professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. And I'm very concerned that 400 years of enlightenment, of scientific progress, uh, may come to an end. And I think we have to work very hard to avoid that. Tonight, Dr. Kuldorf breaks down the biggest problems he sees in public health and the scientific establishment, and how it must be reformed to regain public trust. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanni Kellick. Dr. Martin Kuldorf, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. We're actually two years to the day now after 15 days to slow the spread was announced um, as we're filming right now. And I thought, what a good opportunity to get your you know, reaction to this at this point. Yeah, so maybe some people have problem with mathematics because I think it's been more than 15 days since two years ago. There were obviously reasons at that time to not overburden the healthcare system. So it was important to flatten the curve so that everybody did not get sick at the same time. But there was no reason to close schools or close universities. And of course, education is important for our children uh, because we already knew back then that while anybody can get infected, there is more than a thousand-fold difference in the risk of mortality from this disease, as well as a huge difference in hospitalizations. So to minimize the burden of hospitals, the key thing was to protect the older people, because they are the ones who, if they are infected, will go to the hospitals. So we should have done more from the very beginning, protecting older, high-risk people, while letting the children still go to school. So there should never have been any school closures. And we know that from Sweden. Uh, Sweden had a big first wave in the spring of 2020. They never closed the daycare schools for children between ages one and 15. And among the 1.8 million children, there were uh, zero deaths uh, during this uh, first wave. And there were very few hospitalizations. And uh, also Sweden did not, uh, did, uh, create a sort of a field hospitals, but that was never used. Now, that was impossible to know at the time, so I think it was good to create that spare capacity. It was, it was good to uh, encourage older people to be very careful and uh, stay away from restaurants and crowds in order to flatten the curve. But uh, to closing schools, that was the wrong decision. And unfortunately, if it had been only 15 days, there wouldn't be much harm to the children. But uh, that dragged on for, for a long time. And there are many kids who had their schools closed uh, for over a year. And even beginning of 2022, there were uh, some places where the schools have been closed. This was very tragic for our children. And uh, this is something that we took away from our children that they're never going to get back. When these policies were announced, right, I guess how quickly did we know the data from Sweden? Because that sounds, the d Swedish data sounds very uh, convincing, I guess, is the best, the best way to put it. So at some point, there might have been an opportunity to reverse course looking at that information. Yeah, that's what I thought would have happened. And of course, that happened in the neighboring Scandinavian countries and some other European countries, but not in the US. And that's sort of stunning because there were reports 
from Sweden that the Swedish Public Health Agency put out in uh, June or July of 2020. But uh, New England Journal of Medicine had an article later that summer where they looked at evidence for or against closing schools. And they didn't even mention the Swedish data. There was like one major Western country who kept the schools open. And in evaluating whether that's a good thing or not, New England Journal of Medicine, they didn't even mention that data. That's like doing a, a trial for a new drug and not having a placebo to compare with. So I, I have no idea why the journal would not include that type of information because there was no secret, it was a public report. Well, and in this kind of speaks, I guess, indirectly to the big question of what I want to talk to you about today, which is, you know, there's a whole kind of structure around how science is done. And specifically, of course, we're looking at it through the angle of, of health science and public health and so forth, which, you know, you've argued is, you know, needs dramatic reform and that everything that's happened over the last few years is indicator of that. Well, I'm very concerned, and I'm very concerned that 400 years of enlightenment, of scientific progress, uh, may come to an end. And I think we have to work very hard to avoid that, because science is important. It's an important part of our culture and our civilization and how we live and how we reason. I'm going to jump in. Okay, so that is, of course, a very big thing to say, <laughs> 400 years of enlightenment coming to an end. What exactly are you seeing coming to an end? For science, you have to have open discourse, open discussions. Uh, I want scientists to have, uh, scientists have different views than I do on a topic. I want them to be able to express that so that either I, so I can learn from them and either change my view or argue against their views. And uh, new ideas always come from the fringe uh, in science. So we have to encourage new ideas to come up. And we can't have science to become a religion where there are dogmas, as it has been during this pandemic. We have had uh, dogmas and things that are not based on science at all. And then people who uh, question it has been censored or slandered or smeared. And, has the ha and that is something that has sort of come from the very top of the scientific establishment. And the trust in science and the trust in public health has deteriorated. And for good reasons. You shouldn't trust the system that's not operating uh, properly in a scientific manner. The major fatality of this pandemic has been all the people who, are, who have died. But another fatality has been uh, science and public health and the trust in science and public health. And that's something that we have to work very, very hard to restore to deserve that trust again. One of the reactions to people not trusting the system increasingly, like you're suggesting, has been a much bigger focus on, what I think, what they call fighting misinformation, which, but which there is certainly a lot of misinformation out there, and, and disinformation for that matter, not just misinformation. Um, and just, you know, your, your quick thoughts on this. I don't think we should have the misinformation police, because I think scientists and uh, uh, with the help of journals and, and the public, we'll sort of sort that out if everybody's sort of allowed to express their views. So we have a lot of things that are censored as misinformation that then we find out later turned out to be true. And that's very dangerous. One example where 
science went wrong was in natural immunity after recovering from COVID infection. We have known that if you have had an infection, you will typically develop immunity and then that uh, will protect you uh, as you go forward. So if you get infected a second time, uh, you may not at all get infected at all, or you might have just a mild disease because you have no immune system that protects you. We have known these things since uh, for two and a half thousand years, since uh, the Athenian plague in 430 BC. And suddenly we don't, we sort of dismiss that. It's thrown out the window. We have, uh, a large group of scientists who in the fall of 2020 wrote a petition uh, that was published by Lancet, which is one of the most famous medical journals uh, out of the UK, questioning national immunity after recovering from COVID. We currently have a director of the CDC who was one of the signers of that petition. And that's pretty astonishing to have a CDC director who does not recognize natural immunity after having recovered from COVID. And it's pretty astonishing to have universities and university presidents and hospital presidents, including famous university hospital presidents, who uh, fire staff who have natural immunity from having recovered from COVID, which is superior to uh, immunity from vaccines. So instead they should the hospitals should hire these people, should hire nurses who have recovered from uh, COVID because, and use them for the more sensitive patients, the older in the geriatric wards or in the ICUs, because they're the ones who are least likely to spread COVID to these older, frail patients who we need to protect. So uh, I can't understand how universities and hospitals are firing the staff who are least likely to spread this disease. Of course, the general, the general situation is when there's a disease, someone has the disease, they get through it, they get immunity. That, I mean, th there was a suggestion that somehow COVID might be an outlier. So I, I, guess, I guess it's not necessarily obvious to the layperson that they should just assume that, yes, natural immunity will be, the, will, will be what, what, what will happen, right? Like, why are you so convinced to 2,500 years? Well, that's uh, how uh, most infectious diseases work. Um, there are exceptions like uh, AIDS, for example, and that's how our whole immune system is sort of built. And uh, when it comes to COVID, there are four other coronaviruses that are circulating uh, endemically in the population. And we have immunity in all those four. We have, uh, so there's no reason to believe that COVID would uh, act differently. We know, I mean, what vaccines do is sort of to try to mimic a natural infection without the bad consequences of maybe dying. So the vaccine is sort of meant to sort of stimulate your own immune system. So it would be shocking if the vaccine had better, gave better immunity than having recovered from the disease. Yeah. Uh, if it can do equally well, that's a very successful vaccine. Um, in terms of the COVID, three months after the start of the pandemic, we knew that there were protection for at least three months. Six months after the start of the pandemic, we knew there were protection for at least six months. A year after the start of the pandemic, we knew there was protection for at least a year. We obviously didn't have any studies comparing national immunity to the vaccines before the vaccines were given. 
But in the summer of 2021, half a year after vaccines came on the market, we already knew from a study, for example, in Israel, that uh, if you were vaccinated, you had 27 times higher risk of a symptomatic infection compared to if you had recovered from COVID without being vaccinated. And there were uh, somewhat different numbers for hospitalizations. And, but, but for death, there were zero deaths in both groups. So both vaccines and uh, national immunity pro uh, protected you very well against death. Uh, and of course, now we know that even if you have had the vaccine, you will eventually get COVID. And the pandemic will end, and that's something we've said for a long time, the pandemic will end when uh, most people have had uh, COVID, and then you have natural immunity, and then it will be endemic. And people will still get it, and, but then it will be milder. Uh, until you're 93 years old, when maybe the, your immune system is very weak, and then you might die from COVID uh, on the f after the fifth time of being infected, for example. How is it that today we're still questioning natural immunity, as far as I can tell? So I think the scientific structures are broken, and science is broken, and public health is broken. There are probably various aspects to that. Sort of take a step back and, and see how science operates and, uh, in terms of making a scientific career. So there's sort of three pillars to that. One is uh, to make a scientific career, you have to publish scientific papers. And that you put that on your CV, and then uh, that sort of establishes you as a, as a scientist. And there are certain journals that are more prestigious to publish than others. Lancet that I mentioned is one of them. Unicular Medicine is another most prestigious journals to publish in. And then you have, of course, the editors there, and you have uh, uh, reviewers who sort of controls who gets to publish there and what gets to be published. And each area of science have sort of their own little group of people. My colleague, uh, Dr. Sunita Gupta at uh, Oxford College, like a cartel, who sort of controls that because they are the ones who use the papers and they might be the associate editor and so on. Uh, and it's important to publish in these journals if you want to have a career because that's sort of the currency of performance of scientists. Then you have another thing is funding of research. To do research, you get to be funded, but also to put on your CV, you have to sort of say that you are good enough science to be able to get funding from the National Institute of Health, for example. So that's also very, that's sort of the second leg or, or second part of it, that you have to get research funding uh, as a principal investigator. And then the third leg is the promotions that are controlled by the university. So that's the one that's most decentralized. But even there, uh, you need recommendation letters from, uh, or evaluation letters from other people in your field, uh, from maybe other universities. So you have the same group of people who are evaluating the grants, who are evaluating uh, who should get published to the prestigious journals and who gets promoted. So you have to be part of that group to succeed in science. And I think that leads to a lot of group thinking that people do not dare to go out on the edge or on the fridge, fringe to voice uh, views that are sort of contrary to the senior people who control uh, what uh, Dr. Gupta calls cartels. And it's not like there's one cartel for all of science. So each sort of sub subsets of infectious disease technology will sort of have this group of people. And it's not just in medicine and public health, it's in other areas also. And I think in some areas this works perfectly fine. 
because you have people who are very open-minded and welcoming to new ideas and new things. And in other areas, it doesn't work very well because those who are sort of uh, uh, controls, they, they might be more protective of their own views and so on. So that can vary in different subfields of science. But these, uh, so it becomes sort of a centralization of science. And we can see actually during the pandemic that some of the best research did not come from the US or UK, who sort of considered the powerhouses of science, but came from places like Qatar or Israel or Denmark or Sweden or Iceland. And I think the reason is that they are a little bit, they're not uh, removed from these cartels, but they're a little bit on the periphery, because especially with the funding situation, they still have to publish in the same journals and so on. But in terms of the funding, they're a little bit on the periphery. So I think that's an indication that within sort of the center of, of science in the US and UK, there wasn't this ability to, uh, to do the research needed to get the knowledge that we needed to deal with this pandemic. I think that's just because of this cartel uh, system. Let's start with some of the research that wasn't done that, you know, you would you would argue is you know obvious that should be done where it, i mean there's also research that was done that was ignored that's just kind of the second piece we talked we already talked a little bit about that but, but let's start with what research wasn't done here that that really is stark so one thing that wasn't done uh, as soon as the pandemic started we didn't do the studies needed to find treatments so there are a lot of drugs that are existing drugs that might be used for other viruses or, or things. And many of them are generic. And we didn't do the solid randomized trials to determine, quickly determine if these work for COVID or not. There were a bunch of smaller studies, but that was the job of NIH, the National Institute of Health, and specifically the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is part of NIH, uh, they didn't do those studies, and they should have. They should have done those studies for at least a dozen different existing drugs to find out within a few months, do they work or not for COVID. So there was one good study that was done for a drug, and that was from Remdesivir. And the reason is that that's proprietary. So the company who owned Remdesivir decided it was worth all the money, because it's expensive to do these randomized control trials, they decided it was worth doing that because if it, if it uh, was able to treat COVID, they will make a lot of money from this drug. And in the end, it sh they did a very solid study showing that it doesn't really work very well. Uh, it was still approved by FDA for some reason, but it doesn't work very well. But that was the only drug for which there was a very solid, good study. And they should have done that for many other drugs, and more, probably most of them would have found out that maybe it didn't work either. But uh, that should have been done to find out if there was one or two or three drugs that did work. And then we wouldn't have all these uh, disagreements about various treatments, whether they work or not. Because if there had been one large, solid, randomized trial, we would have known one way or the other and we wouldn't have to have to squabble, squarrel, uh, quarrel about uh, whether a particular drug works or not. On this point a little bit, I understand there's like, there are a suite of drugs which at the moment have shown promise, most of which are 
these you know repurposed repurposed drugs yeah. like one that just comes to mind because i remember there was a smaller maybe not the size of rct but like fluvoxamine it was an antidepressant i think right is uh was was found to be effective in us in some kind of an rct but that wasn't adopted very quickly as a kind of hey everybody this is what we can use now or type setup right yeah and i think if there had been large randomized controlled trials we would it would have been giving a very clear answer and there would be more of a consensus of what drugs work or does not work and the person who should have, who should have initiated these studies immediately as soon as the pandemic started was the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, as well as the director of NIH, uh, Francis Collins. So there was their responsibility to do that, to make sure that we found that knowledge. Uh, now, there were other things that we didn't study. For example, there were done small seroprevalence studies. So this, this is to find out how many people have already had the disease by checking if they have antibodies. Uh, for example, there was a very good study done uh, in the spring of 2020 in Spain where they randomly selected 60,000 people of different ages. There were smaller studies done in other countries like Sweden or Iran or, or, uh, or Japan and so on. There was one important one done uh, in Santa Clara by uh, uh, Jay Bharacharya and, uh, and, and others, uh, which was, uh, I think, the, the most important one in the U.S. But this, this was sort of a small study in one county and what should have been done was to do continuous surveillance with randomly selecting people across the country at different times in different states, uh, different cities, uh, different age groups. So to constantly monitor what the level of antibodies is. And, uh, uh, but that's not the responsibility of, of NIH because that's more of a public health issue. So that's the responsibility of CDC and they didn't do that. So that kind of research question should CDC should have done. And they have plenty of money, a huge budget, a lot of uh, staff. So they, that should have been sort of one of the, the priorities for CDC during a pandemic. And they didn't do it. It almost, you know, just as I'm hearing you now, I'm thinking to myself, there's a kind of a chain here, right? If the natural immunity is not supposed to be important, then doing the natural studies about how much natural immunity there is in the population might also not be important. So these things aren't isolated, what these different agencies did or didn't do. Yeah, and I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe that's how they were thinking. Uh, I know in other countries they did do some of these seroprevalence studies. It strikes me that this model that Sunetra Gupta called, you know, cartel model of uh, uh, doing science um, it's susceptible to, you know, I think you said this earlier, groupthink, right? So if, 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 a, if the group responsible for one area suddenly all believe a certain thing very strongly, for whatever reason, then the system breaks down. I'm guessing that the corrections you see need to be made to the system somehow help deal with that. Yes, I think the key thing is to do decentralization so that you don't have these sort of power hubs. So for example, in terms of the funding of science, we have Dr. Fauci sort of sits on the biggest chunk of infectious disease research money in the world. So it takes a little bit of a guts to uh, contradict his view on the pandemic strategy because you might lose research funding, which you need to support your family and support other members of your lab or your research group 
would depend on these resource funds. So they should. Uh, so that was sort of a conflict of interest where the person who, handings, who is handing out the research funds is also sort of the architects of the strategy because then other scientists will not dare to, to question that strategy. So, so what should have happened is that it's, there really is a difference because NIH is the research arm of the federal government. So they should have focused on uh, do, making sure all the research was done that was needed to deal with the pandemic. But in terms of what public health strategy to use, that's not the role of NIH. That's the role of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So that should have been separated, and which it wasn't because sort of Anthony Fauci stepped in and did uh, the job of CDC, which was not his job. And to be honest, as a virologist and immunologist, he doesn't have the public health expertise to deal with those things. But he didn't do his own job, which was to fund the studies to find out what treatments work or do not work for, uh, for COVID. So I think we, uh, it's uh, destructive to have all infectious disease research centralized in one institute like that. And of course, there are some other uh, research, sources of research money. One is the Gates Foundation, and another one is uh, the Wellcome Trust in the UK. But they were all on the same page with Fauci and Jeremy Farrar, who has the Wellcome Trust in the UK. So they were all sort of talking, and Jeremy Farrar, who is the head of Wellcome Trust, he was uh, one of the lead advisors to the UK government and one of the lead proponents for the lockdowns there. Uh, and I know the Gates Foundation was promoting the lockdowns. So then those who have connections between themselves and controlling the money, uh, it was, became very difficult for, for other scientists to sort of oppose their strategy. At the same time, that there are such, uh, who some studies sort of jumped on the bandwagon and wanted to sort of help support Fauci and Farrar and so on, uh, because that might be good for their careers to do so. Uh, so they were sort of reiterating what they what they thought, whether they truly believed it or not. Uh, probably they did, but uh, uh, there was sort of incentive to to support their views because of this. So I think the the research funding has to be decentralized so that you don't have these few power houses uh, in terms of giving research fund. If you look at the journals, uh, they were not doing a very good job. For example, on mass, there's been two randomized trials on mass for COVID. So those are the two best studies uh, because they are randomized. And uh, one was in Denmark and they had a very hard time getting it published. It went from one top journal to the next. And eventually it was, but uh, that, uh, that should have been published immediately by, uh, by the first journal it was sent to. Uh, the problem was that that study wasn't able to show that masks had any benefits. So it, it didn't follow sort of what's the general thinking at the time. So the other study was a randomized study in Bangladesh, which showed somewhere between the efficacy of the, the mass between 0 and 18%, which is, of course, very low. And you would never prove a vaccine with that low efficacy, for example. So basically, both studies said that the mass either had no or very limited benefit of preventing infection. So the journals is also part of the problem. And I think there is actually easier to decentralize it, because why do we need these journals? One of the points of the time we did need them because we had to uh, make paper copies that was then sent to all the university libraries. 
That's how you uh, find out what other scientists were doing. But we don't really need that anymore. We can have a system where each university just publishes their own scientists. And if they're hiring a scientist, they should trust that scientist to, to publish good research and be willing to publish it. Because why would you have somebody working as a professor if you're not willing to have their research published? So if university has published their own research, that would mean that the scientists can just put it out there immediately uh, without delay, which is important. And uh, there's no prestige in which journal you publish in, so the journal has to sort of stand on its own feet and not get a boost or by what journal was published in. And then, of course... You mean the, sci the scientist, sorry, right? The scientist doesn't need the boost from the journal, is that...? Yeah, so what the way it works now is that it's to, to, to make a career, you have to publish in these top journals. Otherwise, you know, if you want to be promoted to an associate professor and a full professor, but that's sort of an artificial thing. We, we can still just have each university publishing uh, all their scientists, and then we can judge the papers by themselves by how many, what other people think about that paper, uh, what number of citations it gets, the attentions it gets, if people write about it, if it leads to breakthroughs. So, I mean, that's really the way promotion should already work. Hmm that we judge the actual science, but people are lazy, so instead of actually reading a paper that says, oh, it was published in Union of Medicine, it must be a great thing. And we, he, uh, he or she deserves promotions. Oh, it was only published in some lower tier journal, so maybe that's not uh, count as much. But if we actually had a system, it would be faster, uh, that the universities just published their own, uh, their own scientists, it would be faster. And we can still sort of judge the papers without the imprint of the journals, which I think doesn't really serve much of a purpose anymore. So, because, okay, because even if it's a famous journal, there's a lot of variation there in quality between the sciences in New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet. Uh, and there's more variation within the journals than it's between the journals. So a lot of really good papers, legal uh, science is published in lower, so-called lower tier journals, while the upper tier journals are also publishing uh, a fair amount of things that's kind of not so great. So it's better to not let the anonymous reviewers of these journals determine who, sh who should sort of get published in these papers, in these journals that you need for promotions, and have a more open review system. So when universities if universities will publish their own scientists, they should still be peer-reviewed. But we could have an open peer review so that uh, it could be sent out to two or three or four people and then they comment on it and say, this is great or, well, this could have been done better or this is complete trash or whatever. But to have open peer review, I think now there is mostly anonymous peer review, which also leads to uh, one group sort of uh, undermining others anonymously. So what I'm hearing here is that, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like in the current system, you know, politics can be kind of injected a lot more easily into the process than one might like. Yes, yeah, so academic politics, so politics within the academic community. Uh, of course, it could also become national politics uh, in, in those subject areas, which has sort of a those kind of implications. But 
for sure in academic politics. And I think that that's not a good thing because often breakthroughs in science comes from the fringes, new ideas. And this sort of discourages new ideas, this centralization, uh, these cartels. Um, so that's what I think we have to break up and make it more decentralized. Another, another issue is that when, when applying for grants, you apply for something that you want to do. And then maybe you submit two grants and you get one, but not the other one. But sometimes you are awarded the grant that's actually the least interesting. So what scientists do that have on the site to do that's more interesting stuff also. But I think a better system is to say, well, we're not going to evaluate grants on their potential promise. It's better to evaluate the scientists on what they have already done. So this is the research they did the last three years, or the last five years. And if they did good research, then I would trust them to continue to do good research. If they did lousy research, I don't think they will be able to suddenly turn around and do fantastic research. Now when I say good research, I don't necessarily mean research that has huge breakthroughs, which that's part of it. But a good study that finds that a new drug doesn't work is also a good study. So that's also good research. If it's a solid study that says that you can't use this drug for diabetes, for example, that can be just as good as a study saying this drug is really good for diabetes. And I work on vaccine safety and find doing a study to, that finds out that a vaccine creates some adverse reaction, that's important to know. And so we need good studies that evaluate drugs, but it's equally important to know if a vaccine does not generate adverse reactions, because that will increase confidence in these vaccines and more people will be willing to take it. So good studies is not depending on the outcome, but it's depending on how it's, uh, how it's designed and how, how solid it is in terms of a scientific basis. Well, and let me just jump in quickly, you know, because one of the topics that we didn't discuss about what research, let's say, wasn't done or was done is this question of the vaccine safety. There's been a lot of concern, right, that the vaccine safe, proper vaccine safety research wasn't done around these mRNA sort of new quickly made vaccines. I and mean, what are your thoughts on that? So we have a vaccine safety surveillance system in the U.S. as well as in other countries. And I don't think we have used it optimally. Uh, if you look at the media, a lot of attention is on the uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system, the VAR system, which is the combined system run by FDA together with CDC. That's not the best system. It's not even a very good system because it's spontaneous reports. So if you have the vaccine and then Five days later, you have a stroke, you can report it, or your, your wife can report it, or your, your physician can report it, or a nurse can report it, or, or your, uh, your cousin can report it to the VAR system. But just because you had it the week after you had the vaccine doesn't mean that it was the vaccine that caused the stroke. It could have been just by chance that you happened to get it a few weeks, a week after the vaccine. So the VAR system has a lack of denominator data. Now, if it's events that happen a few minutes after the vaccine, 
that's not really a problem. So you know, for example, that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine causes anaphylaxis, which is an allergic reaction, usually within 30 minutes after you, you get the vaccine. And these spontaneous systems like VAERS can pick up that and we can get that information about those because that just wouldn't happen by chance of a lot of people so soon after the vaccine. But to really know about other adverse reactions, we have to rely on two other systems. One is the CDC has a vaccine safety data link, which is an excellent system. Uh, we look at electronic health records. You know these people had the vaccine, and you know exactly how many of them had a stroke, how many days after the vaccine, how many people have myocarditis, how many people had a heart attack, how many people have a, uh, had a seizure, etc. And you can, so you can then know exactly how many people were exposed, and you know exactly how many people had these uh, events. So that's, for example, how we found out probably a decade ago now that the measles, mumps, MMRV vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella, varicella vaccine, generated more uh, febrile seizures than having separate vaccines for uh, measles, mumps, rubella versus varicella, chickenpox. Uh, and therefore that changed then uh, the recommendations so that uh, when you, children that are one year old no longer get uh, this combined MMRV vaccine because there's an increased risk of febrile seizures, which is not a terribly serious uh, adverse events like uh, some other might be, but uh, still you want to minimize these type of adverse reactions. So the uh, uh, CDC has the vaccine safety data link available but instead of releasing reliable, and they have released data, for example, it's the, that's the data that sort of showed conclusively that these, uh, the Pfizer Moderna vaccine causes myocarditis. So that's, we know that's the true, it's a, it's a rare but true adverse reactions, and it's, we know it's most common among younger people, and it's more common among men than, than, uh, than women. So we know that that's very solid evidence of that adverse reaction. We know that from the vaccine safety data link, there were reports in the VAR system, but from the VAR system, you can't really make that solid conclusions. But unfortunately, uh, CDC are releasing sort of all the data from the VAR system uh, without the proper denominators and without sort of people being able to determine if it was causal or not. At the same time, they're holding very tight on the vaccine safety data link data. And the same thing, the FDA has a system uh, that's similar to, but it's based on health insurance claims data called the BEST system. And uh, we haven't received very many much data from that system about this. Uh, and I think it's important for this system to, to report it, both if there's a problem, like with myocarditis, but it's also important to show that it doesn't cause something else. Uh, in order to, to have uh, trust in the vaccines. So it's important that uh, CDC and FDA uh, reports results from these superior systems in a very timely manner and uh, to do it sort of continuously uh, so that the public knows that we are monitoring virus reactions and this is what was found and this is what was not found. Here, so we have a whole suite of things here that we're looking at. I'm just, I, I, I can't help but, you know, kind of think back to what we were talking about earlier. There's types of studies that just simply weren't done that needed to be done. There's data that was available that was ignored, again, for, for whatever reason. 
and then there's you know kind of this situation that there's just data that's kind of being withheld, and I don't know what the norms would be uh, around making data broadly available. But so why don't we get, jump to this area? Like, what would be the optimal situation, and, and what can be done immediately to start moving us in that direction? So it's a little bit separate from uh, sort of more NIH type research versus CDC type research, because uh, CDC's research is sort of aimed at specific public health issues uh, and gathering knowledge about some uh, current phenomena. I think with NIH, what needs to be done is it needs to be decentralized. If scientists, instead of having these grants that they need to do certain things that they have promised to do, if they had grants based on the work they've done previously, because they're excellent scientists, then they can easily shift and say, okay, there's a new resource question coming up. Because now, if I have a research idea, let's say two years ago, in March 2020, I would have to write a grant to NIH, which takes eight months to review, and then maybe a few more months if it's funded, or maybe I have to write, send, maybe it wasn't funded, I have to sort of reapply with the second uh, application. So that can take often at least a year before you can start a project. But when a new things like a pandemic comes, you don't have that time. Mm. So if there was a situation where scientists got their research based on prior performance instead of what they're promising to do, then they could easily shift their emphasis on what they're doing to what happens to be the most interesting. And I think scientists are good at finding interesting questions and trying to solve them. That's what scientists are supposed to do. And uh, uh, the competitive nature is good in that sense because they all want to sort of be the first of finding a new, the new important findings. Now, the fact that scientists could not do that because they uh, have to do the grants that they have been get money to do, that meant that it fell on NIH and NIID to quickly fund those studies to start, to basically call up scientists at different universities, can you quickly, uh, we have $2 million for you, or $5 million, or $1 million. Could you please quickly organize a randomized trial to evaluate drug A if that works against COVID? But they didn't do that either. So either of those two things would have worked for COVID, I think, uh, but uh, they didn't do that. And I think that's a failure, both the systematic failure of how the funding is set up, but also in terms of letting scientists have more freedom of doing what they think is most important when new things comes up. That's a systematic issue. The other one is a personality issue that the director of NIID didn't launch those studies because Dr. Fauci was one of the few people who had the money to quickly get those studies off the ground. Uh, and he didn't do that. And that was a, a big failure, I think, on, on his part and on the part of NIH. So what about these, uh, now we're talking about, you know, which studies should be done and that they should be done quickly. What about these other areas? You know, which data is even considered, you know, that, that does exist, right? Um, like, for example, you know, the, the natural immunity information, you know. So that doesn't exist either. So the CDC has to collect that data. But it's a little bit different from NIH data because it's more 
gathering information needed to find the best strategy for the pandemic. And they have surveillance systems in place, EDC, looking at uh, monitoring flu. They have contracted with certain physicians who, send in, who do the test if the patients have flu or not. So they have these systems for monitoring the flu and so on. So they should have done like they did in Spain and other countries to have uh, ongoing surveys to look at uh, seroprevalence surveys, to look at the antibodies. That should not be left to uh, somebody like, I mean, Dr. Barashai did an excellent job with the Santa Clara study together with Dr. Ioannidis and uh, uh, Dr. Ben David and, and others, but sort of had to s s scramble up to get a little bit of resources to do it sort of on the side. And they did it in Santa Clara studies, which is sort of close to, to Stanford where they work. Uh, so that was a fantastically important study because that's the question we didn't know before. We needed to know how many have already been exposed to know how dangerous this disease is or not. Um, how many people have had it without knowing they had it or how many people had it without having to go to the hospital. So at the very beginning of the pandemic there was talks about fatality rates of three or four percent, but that's if people who went to the hospitals, then they're already among the sickest and then it's fairly high. But if you look at people who were infected, which is the more, more important one, then the fatality rate was much, much lower and less than one percent. So uh, those studies were important, but, they can, uh, but uh, even though they work at a famous university and a wealthy university, they can only scrape together funding to do a small study in Santa Clara County. They did one actually in, in Los Angeles also, the second one. But they cannot do a whole, whole uh, nationwide surveillance system and no scientist could have that capacity. So that's something that something like CDC would have to do, uh, where they set up these surveillance systems to, to monitor that. And we would have known incredibly quickly that the death rates and, you know, even serious disease rates were nothing close to what was being predicted by these models. Correct. Uh, you're referring to the Imperial College models. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that CDC didn't do is when somebody is reported to have died from COVID, did they die from COVID or did they die with COVID? So then you would look at uh, medical charts and see, okay, these people died, reported from COVID, but did they actually die from COVID? So either they, COVID was the main cause of death or it could be a contributing cause. Maybe somebody was frail and then they got COVID and that sort of pushed them over the edge and maybe they died a month or two earlier because of that. Or it was completely unrelated uh, because they had been tested positive but then they died for something else, completely unrelated. And uh, we should have done those kind of studies to find that out for a random sample of people who reportedly died from COVID and we should have done it for every child because the number of children were only uh, a few hundred, you know, were in the hundreds. So for children, it would have been easier for CDC to evaluate uh, every, every child to see if they actually died by, from COVID or with COVID. Well, you know, and I just noticed that the CD revised uh, today as we're recording a bunch of its data, right? Yeah, I think they're lower by 25% or something like that's right. for children. And very significant decrease in pediatric deaths. Yeah. Having accurate information of that is important during the pandemic, both for planning purposes, but also for communications purposes with the public to, uh, so that people have accurate uh, ideas about it. And we know from surveys 
that the public did not have accurate knowledge about the risks of COVID. There were surveys both in the US and UK where they said that people thought that a large percentage, uh, several percentage, uh, like 5% or so, I forgot the exact number, uh, had already died from COVID in the UK, I think. And we had surveys that's in, from the US that said that older people tended to underestimate the risk of dying from COVID, but younger people vastly overestimated the risk. Orders of magnitude in many yes. cases. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and providing accurate information like that would have sort of lowered the, the panic stage of the population. And I think if you're in public health, uh, one of the principles of public health is to be honest and accurate with those kind of information. And when you don't know, you should be honest about that. And I think that has come back in to bite public health now because public health, CDC and others said things that later turned out not to be true. And of course, why should then the public trust anything that CDC says? As we finish up, you know, as an immediate kind of step, and I, indeed this is this conference that's part of this Academy of Science and Freedom that, that you helped start, uh, that we're at, is we're gonna be discussing these things, but what would be the immediate um, things that could be done now to help change things for the better? Well, one thing is to immediately stop censoring uh, any scientists. Uh, I self-censor myself on Twitter and LinkedIn uh, because uh, I, I want to be able to keep those platforms to communicate and the, the slander or, uh, of scientists and sort of remove that politicization of, of science. It's, it's very strange to, uh, to be a scientist and I have never declared my political views because I think they're irrelevant. I'm just saying, describing the public health science as I understand it to whoever wants to listen. And I think as a public health scientist, I'm obliged to talk to everybody. It doesn't matter what political views they have. So I think removing that, immediately removing that censoring and uh, encourage scientists to speak up uh, whatever views they have uh, or whatever they think about uh, these issues is sort of an easy first step. Some of the other things we've talked about is more long-term, mm -hmm. like re uh, reforming how the funding of research operates. That's uh, something that will have to be done over a few years, I think, or maybe longer. Well, you know, I can't help thinking that, uh, you know, in these uh, FOIA emails that came out that I think Dr. Fauci wrote, uh, you know, you were described as a fringe, a fringe scientist. So, you know, perhaps change, as you suggested earlier, does come from the fringe. Um, but, but also, actually, you know, as we finish up, I just want to give you a chance to comment on it. There was also FOIA emails that we, we got at the Epoch Times that, you know, where, you know, you're, you and other G Great Barrington Declaration people are being described as AIDS denialists. Yeah, they compared like us to AIDS denialists. Yeah. And I guess the thought that was Dr. Fauci who did that. Uh, which is very strange because the reason that we proposed focus protection in the Great Barrington Declaration is because we take this COVID uh, very seriously and that there needed to be much better protection. Uh, of older high-risk people. So we protected younger members of the laptop class who was terrified of the 
COVID with shouldn't have been because the risk was very, very small. At the same time, we didn't protect older working class people, bus drivers, cab drivers, people working in restaurants, people delivering the food to those young work from home laptop professionals. We did a lousy job protecting older high-risk people and a big, and so the goal with the Great Britain Declaration was to encourage better protection. There was many things we could have done to do that and there still are many things we can do, both with the vaccine and, and uh, making sure that older people get the vaccine instead of what's now being done by CDC is emphasizing trying to vaccinate children and young adults and uh, firing people of working age when it's really those who are already retired, they are the ones who really need to be convinced to get this vaccine because they are the ones who have a, a likelihood of, of dying if they don't, if they are protected by these vaccines. I guess this is an opportunity to kind of ask this, just again for the record, as you understand the data today, the vaccines do protect for the high-risk groups uh, from severe disease and death. Yes, if you're, uh, if you're older, let's say above 60, above 50, and you haven't had COVID, if you have had COVID, you have protection from your natural immunity, but if you haven't, you should certainly, uh, the, the vaccine provides important protection. So older people should get vaccinated because of that. But instead, uh, we protected, we've put a lot of emphasis on protecting people who didn't need the protection because children only have a minuscule risk of dying from COVID. Uh, less than uh, a typical influenza year for children. If you go back, usually, if you go back historically, between 200 and 1,000 children every year die from influenza, uh, depending on the severity of that particular year. And COVID is less risky than that. And so the, the benefit on children for the vaccine is minuscule. Um, and we don't know exactly what the risks are because we haven't, we don't have proper data on that quite yet. Any final thoughts? All pandemics end. This pandemic is ending and it ends when enough people have national immunity and then the pandemic becomes endemic. So it will be with us for the rest of our lives, but it would not create the kind of havoc uh, that it has done. At the same time, while the virus has created havoc in the sense of people dying from it, our countermeasures has created even more havoc with all the collateral public health damage on, uh, of course, the education system, education, but also on uh, diabetes care, cardiovascular disease outcomes, people not getting the cancer screenings or or uh, cancer uh, treatments they should have on, on mental health. So we have an enormous burden now from this collateral damage from the strategy, not from COVID itself, but from our measures uh, at the lockdowns and so on that we have to deal with now. And I think we'll have to try to come together as a nation and as a world to help overcome those and repair the damage that has been made. Because this is something that we're gonna live with uh, for, for many years to come. Somebody who would have lived 15, 20 years might now die of cervical cancer in three or four years because they didn't get the proper cancer screening. So we have to catch up with all those other public health needs that has been sort of ignored.
And you can't just focus on one disease. You can't just focus on short term. You have to look at all diseases and do it long term. And we didn't do that during this pandemic. And that was a huge failure. And I think how we dealt with this pandemic is the biggest public health fiasco ever. Well, Dr. Martin Koldorf, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you so much, John. It was great talking to you as always. We live in an age of censorship and disinformation where some of the most prominent voices, most important voices, aren't actually being heard because they're being suppressed. I invite some of these people onto the show, onto American thought leaders. So to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and our exclusive content, you can actually sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. Just hit the checkbox for American thought leaders.